dear podcast friends, welcome to Insights and Beyond, Digitalization, Sustainability and Technology. The podcast by Trelleborg Ceiling Solutions. You're in the right place if you're interested in the driving questions around topics like digitalization, electrification and sustainability. And above all, if you want to participate in a discussion with your exciting questions and comments. Experience the talks with our experts from Trelleborg and specialists from business, industry and research. So have fun with a new episode of Insights and Beyond. There was a posting that went viral the last months. It contained to the following. Who was the driver of digitization in your company? The CEO, the CTO or COVID-19? The answer to this question must be honestly given by each of us, but there's no doubt that the current situation has been an accelerator of digitization, but also an accelerator for the digital transformation itself. At the end, it's not enough to digitize existing processes. It's about new thinking, new ecosystems, new processes and new market opportunities. I'm happy to talk about these topics and your question with two experts today. Professor Dr. Michael Resch, Director of the High Performance Computing Center Stuttgart and Johannes Kunze von Bischofshausen, Manager Digital Transformation at Trelleborg Seeding Solutions. Hi there. Hi. Hi. You really have to have huge business cards with that title in it, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> okay, first of all, uh, speaking of titles, if somewhere were to give a book title about your impact on digitalization, what would be the title of it? So for us, it would definitely be Digital Transformation, Smart Products, Smart Services, Smart Engineering and Smart Manufacturing in New Ecosystems. Also a huge book cover, but a good title. So, uh, Mr. Resch. Well, I'm I'm currently working on a proposal for a book, so um, we're, we're still thinking about the title and it might be something like A Digital Day or uh, A Digital Day in Your Life or something like that. And it contains quite everything because our life is well, that's, digital. <laughs> that's, that's one of the problems we are currently discussing, uh, what to put into the book and, and what to leave out. Yeah, that's a hard, hard and tough task. Another tough task, maybe, is my next question. Everyone is talking about digitalization. What question would you like to be asked? Because you think that this is an important question, but at the same time, a very unnoticed problem. So a question I would like to be asked is, what does it mean for me as an individual, but also what does it mean for me as an enterprise? Because digitization There are so many different aspects of it. And the question is really, how do I create value by leveraging digital tools in, in my area, in my focus area where I'm working on digital transformation? I mean, uh, we, we started with this joke about digitization and the drive of COVID-19. That was, I mean, uh, remote work and, and more digital communications, which was uh, where COVID was a driver. But that is only a small fraction. The question is really, do I want to offer new digital products or digital services? How do I use it internally to support my decision making? Those are the, the questions where every company needs to have a strategy, build its own individual roadmap, and that can be very different um, depending on the, the assets and capabilities, depending on the, the branch, of course. So it really depends what the company wants to achieve and therefore digital transformation is, is very individual. 
That's a good point. I mean, um, I think a lot of problems are based on the situation that everyone is talking about digitalization or digital transformation and uh, explaining it to all the employees, but no one is enabling someone. And I think this is one part of it. So, uh, Mr. Resch, what would be your question uh, you would like to be asked one time? I, I, think, I think I would love to hear three questions. And the first question would be, what is it? What is it actually? What is what is happening there when, when we talk about digital? Uh, the second question is, how does it work? What can we achieve with that? What what kind of tool is that? And then the third question would be, what can it do for me? How can it help me solve my problem? Because um, as you said, people are talking about digitization um, for a long time. I, I remember having given the talk like 10 years ago and, 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 and uh, I, I remember I had this one slide where I said, what do political parties think about digitalization? And the answer was that every single party at that time was saying, we are going to push for digitalization. But what, what we see is a situation where you have, uh, on the one side, the freaky part of the society, those people who actually understand every single detail of digitization. And on the other side, you have the profits of, of digitization, those people who tell us about what will happen in 40 years from now, or 30 years from now, or something like that. And there is a huge gap in between. You can't use digitization if they tell you that the new whatsoever system can have this number of floating point operations per second and can handle this number of interrupts per second or whatsoever. And on the other hand, it is useless if anybody tells you, well, you know, in your company in 30 years from now, this or that is going to happen. We, we have to bridge this gap. And for that, we have to say, okay, what is it? What can it do? And how can it help to solve my problem? Yeah, the big picture. That's something I always recognize when I'm working with companies that they're always talking in big pictures and the employees are sitting here and they're asking themselves, uh, do I sit here tomorrow as well? And is this my f still my phone, which I can use? So they, ha they have completely different questions. But let me just uh, quickly ask something uh, I wanted to add. Do you think the value of digitization or digitalization, I think there's a big difference between <laughs> is to make things easier, smarter or better? Or what is the great value? Why should we do it? I mean, it's, it's the same thing with every tool we, we, we started to work with. And uh, there is sort of two things. First of all, you look into it and you say, okay, it can make things faster. And uh, when we can make things faster, we probably can make them smarter because we have more time in a sense to think about it. Like think about a chess player. Chess playing is difficult because you have to sort of anticipate what is going to happen and you have to say, okay, if I do this, then he might do that. Or if I do that, then he and then I and then he and then I. A supercomputer can do this in a fraction of a second. So you can come up with better decisions. So it can be smarter. It's definitely faster. It's definitely smarter. And whether it's better or not depends on how you use it. So <laughs> this is kind of a, a, a yeah, just an int introduction, but there was already so much in it. Um, we're going to talk about some questions. We had the honor to do the virtual conference together in July, and there are still some questions left of the audience. And I want to ask you their questions. So first question is, in Germany, there are many innovative startups and micro enterprises. How can we support these companies or integrate them into the market to strengthen the German economy or maybe country i don't know <laughs> so one prerequisite is definitely that bigger companies uh, bigger organizations need to work with startups and accept them as a partner rather than just a supplier 
So one example in, in Trellabox Ceiling Solutions, about four years ago, we started to work um, with a company that produces so-called FSR sensors, which is a type of sensor we use to automate the stock replenishment in our customer warehouses. And this company, I mean, these, these kind of sensors existed, but they had a special technology to print them. And that made it very affordable. And that is therefore a service that uh, with the help of this startup, we were able to develop and, and supply to our customers. But this took a long time and this was a, a, this required a close collaboration and a trusted relationship between us as a larger organization and, and the startup. And I think that's one big change we need in the mindset of, of how our economy works, that it's not usually we say the, the big guys play with the big guys and therefore typically then um, the automotive OEMs only go to the large IT companies. But that, and we see this in, in, in some areas, is changing already, that startups can be a very vital player in, in order to create completely new services or new products. Mm-hmm. Well, I, in general, I would say we in Germany, and especially here in, in, in Baden-Württemberg, we, we have a very, very successful culture of startups. Uh, when, when, when they travel the Black Forest or, or the Swabian Alp, uh, at every corner you, you're surprised to see 200, 500, 1,000 people working on a specialty and you never heard about the name, but when you look uh, in more detail, you figure out that was a small company with like five people that started to focus on everything. So in general, we have a good startup uh, culture here in Germany. The main problems, I think, are probably two. Uh, One one is that in the field of information technology or digitization, um, these companies, when, when they're very successful, they get acquired by either uh, American or increasingly Chinese companies. So we need some kind of protection of our intellectual property rights, not to protect uh, the individual property right uh, where you have patent or anything, but you, you, you need to keep the knowledge and, and, and everything that comes with it uh, in our country. And um, that requires a rethinking. Uh, and let me tell you a little story here. I was at a meeting uh, where we discussed uh, the topic of startups and the topic of economic development in the state of Baden-Württemberg. And we had a high-level politician there to give a presentation or to give a talk. And I won't mention his name and, and he'll probably send me an email and said thank you. Um, because what he said was, you guys here in Baden-Württemberg, you know how to handle metal but you don't know how to handle information. So stay away from information. So we, we have this mindset that, wow, we are great. We're building the greatest cars in the world. We, we are extremely well in uh, mechanical engineering. People come to us to buy whole factories with all the machinery and everything. So this is where we are good at. Don't do anything else. And the answer is that's not true. We are also extremely good in doing information. We are extremely good in doing digitization in, in the startups that we have here. We need to support them both mentally by saying, yes, okay, this is the next wave. This is this is what keeps us going in the coming years. And I see a lot of this already in the large companies in, in the region here at Stuttgart. And we need to protect them when we have such a situation where, where a Chinese company uh, decides to buy our um, world-leading robot manufacturing companies. That's a crazy advice. I mean, that's how... 
I don't know how he thinks that things won't change. I mean, a car is changing into, let's say, a, a smartphone on four wheels. So it's also a digital product. So you have to dive in deep into uh, technology. But that's a good point. Uh, you said keeping the knowledge is a very, very big part of it and a, and a big problem. Um, and that's also something I see in all those companies because a lot of great and big and groups and companies, they are outsourcing their innovations in kind of an innovation center or something like that. And I think that couldn't be the solution. Um, Johannes, we find on your LinkedIn profile the word entrepreneurship. So how do you create that startup spirit in a corporation? So there are many answers to this question. The first one is you need to have a dedicated team and, and resources. Um, th that is, of course, number one um, priority that if you just select someone and give him the head as that's the as a part time job, that's the digital leader and some some other peoples are doing beside their daily operational job that will not create a real breakthrough. So we in Trellebox Healing Solutions, we created an interdisciplinary team of mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, IT people, data scientists. And this, uh, our innovations we were able to create in the last years, they are all a result of this interdisciplinary culture. So that is number two, dedicated team and an interdisciplinary team instead of only sticking into one discipline because then the new wild ideas are created. And then number three, it also needs an innovative culture across the entire enterprise. And if we're talking about digital innovation, we're not just talking about the big things like the, the service which I described before, which is really completely new service offerings that uh, our competitors don't have. But it could also be a, a small thing like a QR code on a machine, which helps the operator to set up the machine. And, and these small things also require some organizational aspects. So we in each site, in each of our uh, 30 manufacturing sites in, in Trellebox Sealing Solutions, we created a role, which is a part-time role in this context called Digital Champion. And he is into operations. So sometimes he is in, in the area of manufacturing excellence or he's part of the operations management team. But he is really uh, knowing what the shop floor needs and he does the small tweaks. So you need basically both. And that's where, where I believe Trelleborg is very strong in to have this, have a central team that work on the breakthrough ideas and work on the breakthrough concepts, but then also decentralization and innovative culture in all parts, not just um, in our headquarters in Stuttgart, also in our manufacturing sites in the UK or in Italy. I love those ideas with the digital uh, champions in a company. It's kind of a employee of the month 2.0. Very, very cool. Uh, we come to a part which I actually uh, love here in the podcast. It's called Solution or Sci-Fi. I'm going to read out a line, a statement, and I want to hear from you. Is that or could that be a solution for our future or is it more like an idea for a, a sci-fi movie. So here's your sentence. Solution or sci-fi? AI singularity will make our world a fair world. So my statement on this singularity is definitely it will not have an impact if the world is fair or not. Because in the end, 
the AI approaches we are using today and when we, we speak about AI, we mostly speak about machine learning, which means learning from a lot of data and then applying this knowledge, which is learned from this data onto new unseen cases. So the question is always, how do you want to apply this uh, knowledge that was gained? And in the end, as of today, still humans make the decision where it is applied or where it is not applied. So in fact, I would not say that AI makes the world more fair, but in fact, what AI does is it creates more transparency and it's just showing how the world is, um, how the world is actually, and, and it's just like showing a mirror. Mm. Michael, maybe you can explain it in a short sentence, <laughs> what AI singularity is and then what your opinion is on this statement. Uh, well, I guess you're referring to Ray Kurzweil, who, who wrote this nice book about the singularity where where he sort of predicted that, and I don't know exactly 20 years from now, or maybe already less than 20 years from now, um, we will, we will f have a point where we move from human to artificial or from human to digital and then uh, decision-making and everything will be done by digital systems. Now, the, the question, I, I like the question very much. And in English, it, it also makes me rethink uh, because you're talking about intelligence and you're talking about fairness and both of them are human concepts. So the human defined, there is there is no measure for them, even though we try to measure intelligence and, and, and we think that we, we are able to measure fairness. Uh, but both are human concepts, and that means that humans define what is intelligent and human def humans define what is fair. Now, unfortunately, um, for fairness, we don't know exactly what is fair. You, you could say it's fair that those people who work more get more. Uh, you could say, no, 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 it's fair that everybody gets the same share because it's hard to say whether – The, the guy in, in the CEO's office is more important than the guy who invents the new thing that will, will get the company uh, an additional revenue of 50%. Um, and then there are those people who say, well, fair is, uh, fair is if everybody gets what he or she requires. Like when, when you're physically handicapped, you, you definitely need more to get sort of the same level uh, of, of life quality. And that doesn't go away with artificial intelligence. Um, because the only thing that, that you can do is with artificial intelligence is you can train artificial intelligence to make uh, similar decisions as the ones that you as a human being would make. And, and this training material is basically your own decisions. So what you're saying is look at this and this is how we decide it and learn from that. And then, well, artificial intelligence will make, in a sense, human decisions, but not human in the sense that the artificial intelligence will reflect on it, but rather that artificial intelligence will say, okay, you trained me with a million cases, and in these million cases, this is the decision that is the logic decision. So people will get probably more fairness in the sense that it, the decision is similar to another decision that was made earlier, But they will not have the feeling that it is more fair because uh, fairness is your personal understanding. I mean, if you probably find yourself in court someday and you don't find yourself there because you think you did something wrong, but because you think someone else uh, – oh, sorry, someone else thought that you did something wrong and then you start to negotiate. And, and you're looking at the judge and, and you give him or her your arguments and the judge then has to make a decision. And that, that is what you can put into artificial intelligence, the judge's decision. But what you cannot put into the intel artificial intelligence is the reasoning that goes before the decision-making. 
I thought you could give me an answer, but now you confuse me even more. <laughs> but yeah, that's the purpose of science. <laughs> we, we have to confuse you. <laughs> but there's uh, another questions of the, uh, question of the audience, which goes uh, deeper into this topic. And I want to ask it because we're talking quite uh, vividly about this topic right now. But this is a very good question, in my opinion. So um, does the fairness of AI essentially come from the ethical principles of the programmers? And can it really be fairer than a human being? I like this question because I always thought AI needs a lot of data. And that makes it kind of a, yeah, a swarm intelligent uh, version of our, I don't know, of our minds, of our lives. Is that totally wrong? <laughs> Well, the, the answer is that the fairness definitely is implemented by the human being, but it's implemented through machine learning. And that means, as, as I said before, a human being cannot remember the million cases. So the human being might make a decision that deviates from a decision that she or he made like a year ago. Um, But that decision may then again, if it's, it's, if it's done by an artificial intelligence, uh, may again be not fair because circumstances have changed. Let, let me give an example. My kids ask me for cookies. They are like three and five years old. They will turn five in October and three in November. Um, so one of, one of the key parameters of education is consistency and to be fair. It's extremely difficult for me to keep up with that. So should I say yes or should I say no? You have basic rule, but then circumstances say, okay, uh, was a hard day today, so maybe I should give him or her a chance. Um, this level of fairness you cannot implement in an artificial intelligence. So in, in a sense, it could be more fair because it's more reproducible. As we said before, more transparent. But in a sense, it could be more unfair because it does ignore the circumstances. Mm. From a human and society perspective, I can understand that this is a driving question for us. How fair is AI? But is it also a driving question for uh, companies? Definitely. I mean, uh, even from a legal perspective, we are required to document and, and to make transparent uh, why certain decisions in, in some cases are made. So definitely it is um, by legal obligation. And, and even now with, with all the entire data privacy discussion, That is also highly relevant for us. Yeah, definitely. On the other hand, very often in, in, uh, in manufacturing companies, decisions are not affecting any humans. So, for example, if I want to make a, a maintenance schedule or change a maintenance schedule of a machine, that, of course, requires that the, the technician is there at that point of time. So it might indirectly influence it. But most of, the, of our important digitization use cases are not directly affecting persons in a sense at, as it would be if we, for example, we don't use yet uh, and are not planning to use any AI for selecting, for recruiting, for selecting the right people. That is still a very manual job, which we do carefully on purpose. Um, but there are then other areas where we use a lot of AI already for engineering, for example, for smart products, for services, also some other internal use cases. So I would say, yes, it is highly relevant for companies to fulfill it, but it is not the highest priority in, in all AI projects. So I would say it's just a, a factor we have to consider, but um, it's not a big discussion yet. So unless the machines don't have any feelings, it's not a problem at all. Absolutely. <laughs> um, 
At the conference, uh, I mentioned the conference before, we were at the conference in uh, July and there I had an example of Facebook and they used two chatbots, two AI chatbots. And I wanted to find out if the users recognizes that they are chatting with a chatbot. And the funny thing was that those two chatbots uh, said, all right, this English language is way too complex. We create our own. And that was because the programmer forgot to tell the AI bots that they should really use the English language. So how do we make sure that AI won't become completely uncontrollable? So if we look at organizations, there is a big need for the governance of AI applications. And it starts with very simple things, and that's data quality. So if we want to apply AI in organizations that is fed with manually created data, That means we need to take care and be really careful with data quality and make sure that, for example, in a manufacturing setups, operators put in the data in the right way. You need to develop processes so, so data is well maintained. And that's uh, number one. Then you need to, as you do with, with regular applications, decide on update cycles of the models. Where are they used? Where's the data stored? What kind of data are you considering? So there is a lot of governance behind it. You cannot simply just develop an AI solution, deploy it in the in, in the field, on the shop floor, wherever it is, and then never touch it again. It requires a lot of work, but in the end, this pays off through better decision-making, through more efficient production, and then in the end also for our customers. Let, let me add a little bit to this. Um, when, when we assume that given the right data, we get the right decisions, by the artificial intelligence, um, we still have a lot of effort looking into the data and, and we think we will have uh, people who are called data curators, people who actually take care of the data and make sure that we have the right data and make sure that the data are not corrupted, data are not modified um, and data are only taken for the purpose for which they originally were intended to be used, things like that. But you, you raised a second question which is interesting. Um, how can we how can we be sure that the artificial intelligence is reliable? That that is a technical problem. That is absolutely a technical problem. Uh, the philosopher Max Weber uh, talked about science, in which he said that uh, we we have invented machines. That was back in 1919-1920. That we have invented machines that seem to behave magically, but we can still sort of disassemble them and and, and uh, understand what they actually did. Uh, this is extremely difficult when it comes to anything that is done by a computer because you cannot reproduce the result of a computer by trying to do the calculations by hand. The, the only way to understand what, what one uh, digital system was doing is having a second digital system check what happened. So this is a situation that is that is a bit tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to <laughs> speed up a little bit because we're at the end of our podcast. Um, I have got two questions left of the audience. And I know, Michael, it's something you really, yeah, you're passionate about. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you that question. One of, uh, one viewer was asking the question, is programming widely taught and practiced in any Uh, state control schools. Um, he asked for technically side, so on the part of the government and on the content side, requirements of the teachers. 
Well, the, the answer is um, simply no. Germany is sort of the black hole of digital competences in, in the educational system. That's not so much a, a problem of the teachers. It's, it's much more a problem of the society and, and politics not understanding that this is a new technology which our children have to learn and have to understand. And we should, we should at least at the level of middle school and then at high school have a reasonable and, and decent education in handling um, digital things like programming, but also understanding a, a digital system. Um, we, we have the wrong attitude here. Uh, there, there's still, not in companies, by the way, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, we, we always keep claiming that, that companies are sort of conservative, but when it comes to digitization, then in companies you see a much stronger push for digitization, while in society in general, they still think that digitization is something that might probably go away or is not that important. I, I recently had a meeting on, on Friday, actually, a meeting of a general assembly of, a, of an association where, where someone said, Digitization is uh, not relevant. It's highly irrelevant. It's a chimera. It's, it's the, the Greek word for it is. Uh, that's strange because they, they seem to ignore the fact that digitization is already there for 50 years. We started with digitization 50 years ago at, at the latest. And as long as you have this lack of understanding, you will always be in a situation where, where the political system will, will not want to change the, the curriculum. Yeah? And you have you have uh, people who say, my children don't have to learn how to program. If they ever need uh, anyone to write a program, they will go for a cheap uh, Chinese guy. And uh, the funny thing is that I, I spend a lot of time in China for personal reasons and, and for professional reasons. And what they say is exactly the other way around. They say, you know, um, welding and other things, handling metal, that's not important. What is important in the future is how you handle information, how you handle digitization. And if you ever need anyone to handle your metal, you will go for a cheap German. <laughs> yeah, that's the other way around. And I think they, it, it's. I, I've been to China as well, and I was really, let's say, scared how good the children are already in using some smartphones, some mobile devices or other things. It's, it's like they're doing the that naturally so this is a completely different culture over there so it's a cultural question as well and i think it's a it's another huge topic which we can't discuss right now but it's a very very important topic because the only thing uh, we can export to other nations is ideas <laughs> that's our only thing we can do i've got one question uh, left and that's uh i think it's a good question for you johannes uh, could all working environments become sustainable or do certain settings already block people from entering new digital territories so of course uh, companies need to have the digital infrastructure and and that is even an, an area we are, where we are constantly investing in in Trellebox. so of course with our headquarters in Stuttgart people have the mobile devices can select their seats they can work from home without any issues um that is one part of the story on the other hand in manufacturing um you we also invested significantly in the entire infrastructure. So, for example, Wi-Fi slash internet access for our machines um, in order to start dragging the data and, and uh, apply uh, new use cases. So it needs some base work. And then there is the human side on the other thing. 
And what we see, interestingly enough, when we, when we started our digitization projects on the shop floor, we were also thinking about, hmm, there is this 60-years-old operator. He's with Trelleborg for 20 years already. And he was always used to write things on, on, on paper and, and make some, some notes on, on paper about this uh, status of, of manufacturing. And we started rolling out a software for um, activity tracking on the shop floor. And we thought, well, that might be a big step for them. But on the other hand, when we, when we then investigated and, and when we saw how well it was adopted, we just found out, well, they are all used to use digital tools in their private life. So in fact, they were asking even, why are we still using pen and paper while I have my iPad at home? And that is not something that is only for, for the C-level or for the white-color workers. But what we really see is that digitization helps on all areas, also on the shop floor. So they ask you, why is it not working when I say, uh, hey, Alexa, just start the manufacturing and it's it's working on their own. So That's next step. <laughs> that's yeah. next level. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're at the end of our podcast and we have another um, part of it. So it's the sealing test. And, you know, from the material testing, for example, rubber for the sealing solutions, there are two Yeah, let's say two aspects which are important for the material. It's on the one hand, it's uh, resilience. And on the under, other hand, it's flexibility. Resilience is the capability of a material to return to its initial state after a huge pressure. So here's the ceiling test resilience. Where do we need to become more resilient to drive digitization or digitalization forward? So number one is definitely more resilience in terms of new digital projects and adoption. So it can be anything if we're talking about an internal use case or if we're talking about any digital product. It is important to be willing to try out things, to test and learn and iterate over time. So the typical, I would say, German engineering mindset is I want to design a product or a service 100% perfect from the beginning And that is something where uh, where we also had to to work a lot in in, in Trellobox Ceiling Solutions to start small, try out things, try out concepts, and then if we see that's the way how we want to do it, then we scale it up. And that means sometimes that that we do a lot of projects, start with a simple proof of concepts, and find out okay that's not the right thing to do. It maybe we the the idea is is uh, scrap, or we want to. Um, we basically just need some refinement. And that is a willing, but also not to give up too early, not to think, well, we tried it once and it, it did not work, so, so we'll not never touch it again. But in, in fact, to revisit also concept, maybe something worked, didn't work five years ago for some reasons and the, the circumstances changed. So more resilience in trying out new things, external, but also internal. It's kind of the um, uh, the Silicon Valley mindset, right? It's Absolutely. more like, yeah, but he or she tried and not the German mindset. I told you it's not working. <laughs> so, Michael, you're still thinking. I have the feeling that you're still thinking about the question. Well, I, I keep thinking about these questions for 30 years now, so no worries. <laughs> no worries about that. No, what I, what I, what I see is that... Um, We should look at the word resilient and say, as you said, we we go back to the initial state. Um, uh, digitization is a disruptive technology. So uh, it's a technology that, that will not allow us to go back to the initial state. Um, so when we, when we look at it from a technical point of view or from a, from an operational point of view, we should not be resilient. We should say, okay, we, we are we are out there to go for something that is 
completely new and we should not even consider the idea of going back to the initial state or the current state. As a society, probably we, we have to be resilient. I mean, we, we see a lot of stress in the, in the system, in, in, in uh, society, which then gets visible on, on the political level and, and there we should show the resiliency to say, okay, this can take us to a new uh, equilibrium probably or to a new stable situation. There we will probably need as a society a lot of resilience. Maybe you like the next question more. It's about flexibility. So here's the ceiling test flexibility. Where do we need to become more flexible um, to drive digitalization forward? Well, I think, as, as I said before, that we should be less resilient in, in terms of not trying to come back to the initial state. So that requires that we are flexible enough to ignore what we have done over the last years or probably only take the good things from that and say, okay, no, the bad things won't work. Uh, what, we, what we see very often is that digitization is used to just sort of copy the current processes that we have and then at, at, a, at a certain point probably trying to speed that up. But the processes that we developed over the last 100 or 200 years, roughly like that, in, in the age of industrialization, they were done without digitization, without having in mind that you can speed up certain things, that you can have better solutions, that you can have smarter solutions, as we said before. Uh, and we should take the freedom to forget and say, okay, I mean, look at how administrations work. Yeah, they, they have their processes and people have to sign paper and people have to look into paper. And the very simple thing is to, to forget all these things and say, no, we don't move paper around. That sounds strange, but most administrations still move paper around. And you can now digitally sign things yeah, and you can now have your identity as, as a digital human being and you don't have to work with your own signature, your physical signature, you yourself sitting at the table and signing a piece of paper. That's a very, very simple thing. But people don't want to go away from that. We saw this in the corona crisis. Mm. Okay, we will react to the corona crisis. No problem. We will send you the paper by email. And then it, please print it and sign it and scan it and send it back. That just increases the level of work that we have to do. Instead of sitting at my table signing a paper and pushing it to the left and then having it in the postal services, now I have to print it, sign it, scan it, send it by email. That takes about a factor of 10 longer than my usual signature process. So that's a stupid process. It's a digital process, but it's a stupid and entirely stupid process. And we should be flexible enough to say, okay, what do we learn from that? We learn that a physical signature is probably not that relevant. That will require a new level of security, something which is widely ignored. Yeah? But that would take us, with this level of flexibility, we could reshape a lot of things. I have to add something. If there are children listening, it's not an excuse for your math teacher to say, I just want to live the freedom uh, of forgetting. So <laughs> don't use that as an excuse. Forgetting or, forgetting is an extremely important human concept. Without yeah, forgetting, I do it all the time. you cannot live. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I forget more than I ever learned. So, uh, Johannes, last, uh, yeah, you've got the, the honor to close the podcast with your last answer to uh, my question. What, uh, where do we have to become more flexible to drive digitalization forward? So it's definitely being more flexible in the collaboration between organizations. So 
the old concepts of a supply chain and and this linear concept of uh, C part supplier delivers to B part supplier delivers to A part supplier delivers to OEM that is not a concept that works anymore but what we see more and more is that companies work together like Trelleborg was always doing in engineering in in um, supporting our customers to find the cost optimal solution But we see now more and more that there are new players in an ecosystem. There are some startups like we were discussing in, in the beginning that have special technology that create new solutions. But companies need to be ready for that. And the old thinking of this is my supplier and I will treat him like a supplier will not work. In fact, we will see more and more partnerships, even multi-level partnerships between organizations like companies, but also research institutes and startups. Yeah, thanks. That was a very good uh, conclusion, maybe, for this podcast. Thanks so much. But I think there are still so many things out there which we have to explore. And I think that's the task of our time to explore the world <laughs> and to be flexible with all those changes. Thanks for all your insights, stories and the great talk. And uh, yeah, I think we have to do a follow up because there are so many questions left out there. Would you be uh, able to come again? First of all, thanks for having me. And second, yes, it's a pleasure. <laughs> all right. Absolutely. So maybe we see us and hear us next time. Thanks for now. And I think we deserve some cookies. What do you think, Michael? Absolutely. That <laughs> would be extremely fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you don't want to miss anything, just subscribe to our podcast. And of course, we are happy to receive feedback from you. So we're looking forward to your ratings and comments. And of course, we still want to answer your questions. Therefore, feel free to write us at info.podcasts at Thanks a lot and see you next time. <laughs>